This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. When you're a comic book fan, there's always a surge of excitement when they announce a film adaptation of the character you love. The chance to see your hero punch and twist and leap through the air just makes you giddy. But there's always that fear that Hollywood is going to screw it up. That the screenwriter won't get the character the way you get the character. Because you know how it's supposed to be. You know Mary Jane came after Gwen Stacy. It doesn't make sense the other way. But the first indication whether you're going to be buzzing with eager anticipation while you're in line on opening day or dreading each step while you're in line on opening day, because let's face it, you're going to go no matter what. But that first indication of how good or how bad it's going to be happens months before when they reveal the design of the suit. Superhero suits made real with real fabric and real people are very hard to design, but we will judge them nonetheless. That is our job. Either I've gotten much more mellow over the years, or the suits have gotten much, much better. Eric Malinsky has noticed this too. Eric has done a couple of great episodes for us at 99PI over the years, but now he has his own podcast called Imaginary Worlds, about sci-fi and other fantasy genres, how we create these worlds, and why we suspend our disbelief. This is an episode that he produced in 2015 about designing comic book costumes for movie screens, and I really like it, and I know that you're going to like it too. It's called Fixing the Hobo Suit. Hey, let's not stand on ceremony here, Mr. Wayne. If you haven't seen The Dark Knight Rises, Tom Hardy plays the villain, Bane. And for some reason, he did the voice as a cross between Sean Connery and Darth Vader. Given that the character is supposed to come from a fictional Latin American country, it was a very weird choice. Oh, you think darkness is your ally? You merely adopted the dark. But it was so weird. I was born in it. It was kind of amazing and led to all these really great parodies. Yes, there. Um, I believe I would like two packs of Chick-fil-A sauce. Thank you. I don't sound like that. You should have respected my authority. <laughs> but for all the buzz around the voice... I was surprised more people didn't talk about the costume, which I thought was ingenious. So in the comics, Bane looks kind of like a Mexican wrestler. He's got a black hood over his face with a white design in the middle that kind of looks like a skull with red eyes. His strength comes from tubes going to his back that pump him full of liquid steroids. In fact, his shoulders are so huge and bulked out, artists like to draw his head below his neck. There's no way you could do a literal version of that. But that didn't stop Joel Schumacher from trying in his 1997 catastrophe, Batman and Robin. Behold, the ideal killing machine. I call this little number Bane. Of course, Christopher Nolan's Batman took place in kind of a semi-realistic universe. So he and Lindy Hemming, his costume designer, turn Bane's liquid steroids into a gas that he inhales, but it doesn't make him super strong. It actually dulls physical pain. His breathing apparatus is the same shape as the design on the hood in the comics, but the breathing apparatus is black and the design on the hood was white. Of course, he's not wearing a hood in the movie. Instead, we see the actor's bald head. So if you squint, Bane's head in that movie 
looks like the exact same design as the comics, but the negative image of it. Of course, they couldn't give Bane, like, cartoonishly huge shoulders. So instead, he wore a coat that had a very high, round wool collar that gave him the same silhouette as the comic books. Like I said, it was a brilliant design solution. Impossible. Superhero costumes used to be cringeworthy. Even the cool ones, like, you know, Batman from the Tim Burton films, the costume was so bulky, Michael Keaton couldn't turn his head or fight unless the bad guys basically ran into his fists. So what happened? How did the costumes get so much better? I'm Michael Wilkinson, and I'm a costume designer for films. Michael worked on Man of Steel and the upcoming sequel, Batman vs. Superman. He got a lot of heat for the new Batsuit because the first images, it looked like Ben Affleck was wearing a thick rubber cowl and wouldn't be able to turn his head, which would feel like a step backwards. But newly released images show the Dark Knight turning his head. I feel like uh, hopefully when the world uh, has a really good look at the the cowl that um, Ben wears, I hope people like it because a lot of work went into the construction of that. There's all sorts of amazing things going on inside (laughs) that cowl that make it uh, easy to move in and have a full range of expressions. Superhero costumes used to be just standalone works of fashion, which over time became dated or cringeworthy even if they were designed by a genius like Edna Mode in The Incredibles. This is a hobo suit, darling. You can't be seen in this. I won't allow it. What do you mean? You designed it. I never look back, darling. It distracts from the now. It will be bold, dramatic, heroic. Yeah, something classic, like uh, Dinah Guy. Oh, he had a great look. Oh, the cape and the boots. No capes. One of the big changes is that costume designers are now looking more closely at the source material. When Michael Wilkinson and his collaborator James Atchison worked on Man of Steel, they researched the history behind Superman's costume. The genesis of that idea was the, you know, the circus performers, the, the weightlifters and the strong men had this look of wearing you know, early wool jersey tights with their sort of shorts over the top. So Superman's suit was kind of like a combination of the weightlifter and the ringmaster who wore boots and a cape. Also, swashbuckling heroes like Zorro wore capes. So, James and Michael thought, okay, that still communicates strength, power, adventure, but... How are we going to resolve those silly red underpants? So we went through dozens and dozens of drawings. And uh, I remember they pretty much just got smaller and smaller and smaller until one day they just kind of weren't there on the illustration and... uh, That was the the look we decided to go with. What's the S stand for? It's not an S. On my world, it means hope. Sammy Sheldon Differ had a similar experience working on X-Men First Class. Now, in the previous X-Men movies, the mutants were wearing these sort of black leather outfits with just a few distinguishing characteristics. But the director of First Class, Matthew Vaughn, told Sammy that he wanted to go back to the original comics when the X-Men wore yellow and blue jumpsuits. Um, so given that obviously that is a, it's a very simplistic drawing that was on the first cover, I just started researching into the period of the time, why they were drawn the way they were, what the colors were representing. And what immediately came out was in 1963, DuPont discovered Kevlar 
it felt to me like maybe that's what they were trying to represent in the comic. So we kind of went down this route of seeing if that would work for us and also what NASA were up to. The advent of the nuclear age may have accelerated the mutation process. Individuals with extraordinary abilities may already be among us. She pulled it off. The costumes look cool, very 60s. But honoring the source material is tricky. Comic book illustrators, not that they don't understand, but they don't need to um, make a logic of the lines that they're drawing, that where it goes from the front to the back of the body, round over the shoulder. It just what looks cool on the page and sells the the, the dynamic of the, of the character. But when you put that into reality, you've got to follow those lines around the body three 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 sixty. And those characters are wearing skin-tight clothes to show off their ridiculously well-defined muscles, which for some reason is completely believable in the comics. One thing we discovered is that no matter what incredible shape an actor is in, once you put a leotard on them, then everything is kind of smoothed out and all that fantastic definition that they've been working so hard at uh, is kind Hmm. of negated. The next big leap away from cringeworthy costumes was texture. Now, in the old days, comic books could only be printed in a few limited colors. That's why the costumes were usually just one or two, maybe three colors, which looked good. I mean, they kind of leapt off the page. But for a movie like Man of Steel, once you get rid of Superman's red underpants and the yellow belt, the suit is very blue, and that's boring to look at in HD. So they created a silver layer that went under the blue to give it a metallic quality, and they 3D printed texture to give it muscle definition, and a pattern of ridges, which creates visual interest for lighting and cinematography, and they created a backstory to explain that texture. It was chainmail that went under the armor people wore on the planet Krypton. Another trick, which Sammy Sheldon Differ likes to use, is mixing and matching materials on the same costume. With the X-Men costumes, they were layers and layers of fabrics all worked into and pieced together and then you know, connecting things one on top of the other. So uh, if you stand away from them, they just look quite blue with yellow bits. But actually, when you go in close, it's all kind of intricately stitched to make it textured and then panels and then leather pieces and then the, the Kevlar in the middle. Part of design, if it's going to be interesting, is that you have to take risks. And the thing about superheroes, it's a fabulous arena to take risks. The problem is that these films cost a huge amount of money. So you better make, you can take the risks, but you better make sure that you come up with the goods because it's an awfully expensive process to get it wrong. Yeah, and a lot of very angry fans that will let you know if they don't like it. Uh, not so much the fans, it's the producers <laughs> who are still waiting on the, on the set saying, where, where is it? Finally, it needs to move. James Atchison had a devil of a time working on the first Spider-Man film, the one with Tobey Maguire in 2002. He spent three months making nearly 70 versions of that suit, just trying to get the colors right, making sure the textured webbing stayed on. And when it was finally ready, they took it for a test run. We had a stuntman on a wire, um, and they flew him straight into a tree, I remember. (laughs) And the whole suit, I mean, half the webbing unglued from the suit. I mean, it was like, it was sort of like a terrible waffle hanging in the trees. It was... It was a disaster. It's funny, superheroes are supposed to seem indestructible. And maybe there's that scene at the very end where, like, after the superhero's been roughed up, his costume is, like, a little bit torn. But in real life, these costumes are extremely fragile. So the solution is to create 20 or 30 versions of the same costume, 
but each one is tailor-made for the specific needs of each scene. When Sammy Sheldon Differ worked on Marvel's Ant-Man, even that wasn't enough. The suit has power. The man harnesses that power. You should be able to shrink and grow on a dime. So your size always suits your needs. They want someone to kind of, you know, turn over and over and over. Well, I don't know what you call it, tumbling. And, and they put in a rubber floor and then they kind of go, well, he can't do it in these boots. And you have to, you have to go, okay, we have to whip up a pair of boots that look identical to the hero pair, but almost like barefoot. It's a grueling job. And Michael Wilkinson says you really need to sort of step back and realize that this is really a conversation. It's happening across time among designers. You know, in Asian art, where over the centuries you take the figure of Buddha or something like that, and and over the centuries they are refining, they're putting their own sort of stamp on on these these cultural figures. It's kind of like that, I feel, with without making it too grand, with our superheroes, because, you know, each iteration of a superhero, it reflects a lot about the society in which this the, the iteration was born. He's been giving this a lot of thought because he designed the first movie version of Wonder Woman, who will appear in Batman vs. Superman. For Michael, this was a dream assignment. Wonder Woman was super, you know, close to my heart growing up. Um, she was the one that really... Uh, captured my imagination in, in the strongest way. Uh, Linda really? Car- Why? I th- there's something about Linda Carter's performance. They really crossed into this kind of magical world. I was fascinated by the her backstory. And I was lucky enough to actually work with Linda Carter on a film called Sky High, where she played the principal of a high school for superheroes. <laughs> so I had a kind of seminal experience shopping with her on Rodeo Drive that I'll probably never really get over. It was very exciting. I mean, I think the reason why costumes have gotten so cool is because the designers are now constantly asking themselves, why? I don't think you can just get away with doing a unitard with a funny helmet. I think you have to make sense of why is that person wearing that suit? What does he do with it? Does he have a power or is it something that the suit gives him? And then all those questions lead you on to how does that work? That's one of the reasons why I love the new Daredevil series on Netflix. In the first season, there are actually separate episodes to answer all those questions. Why does he need fighting sticks? Why does he need a padded suit? Why does the suit have to be red? Why does it have horns? My grandmother, she was the real Catholic. She used to say, be careful of the Murdoch boys. They got the devil in them. The evolution of Daredevil's costume becomes the story of the character realizing who he truly is. The costume is like an expression of his real self, the one that he has to dig down and find below the surface of his alter ego, Matt Murdock. The best costume designers are storytellers. The fans will nitpick, but I don't really feel like there are any wrong choices, so long as they make us believe something that's wonderful and ludicrous at the same time. I remember spending many, many, many nights (laughs) in a loft in Manhattan, trying to get the right color screen printed onto those those suits. So um, New York is, you know, my favorite city in the whole world. Oh, that's great. It's yeah. funny, too, because I'm because of those films, those Spider-Man films, when I walk around New York and I've lived here now for 11 years, every so often I look up and I just imagine how great it would be to see Spider-Man swinging through those those canyons of skyscrapers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Seriously, it kind of bums me out that we don't see him up there every so often going to... suit will be finished before your next assignment. You know I'm retired from hero work. As am I, Robert. Yet here we are. E, I only need a patch job for sentimental reasons. Fine. I will also fix the hobo suit. <laughs> You're the best of the best, yes, E. Yes, I know, darling. Fixing the Hobo Suit was produced by Eric Malinsky for his show Imaginary Worlds. Right now, he's in the middle of a five-part series about the cultural impact of Star Wars. Of course he is. It's a really great show. Find it at imaginaryworldspodcast.org. So Eric and I both really love the music of Melodium, a.k.a. Laurent Girard. Laurent turned 40 this year and released a new Melodium electro album to celebrate called Friendly Vehicles. Right now, that album is Pay What You Want on Bandcamp, or you can get all 29 of his albums for 88 euros, which is insane to me. It's totally worth it. Make sure you let me know if you buy his whole discography, because you and I should be Twitter friends at the very least if you do that. Get more Melodium in your life at melodium.bandcamp.com. 99% Invisible is Sam Greenspan, Kurt Colstead, Katie Mingle, Avery Truffleman, and me, Roman Mars. We are a project of 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, the finest architecture and interiors firm in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. Support for 99% Invisible comes from Slack. Slack is the best messaging app for teams. Radiotopia owes them so much for their support, making the Radiotopia Forever campaign a huge success. We ended with around 19,500 donors, and the vast majority of them are recurring donations, which really means we can plan our future and our growth. It was more successful than we could have possibly imagined, and the Slack challenges played a huge role in motivating listeners to contribute. But one of the best side effects of the campaign is that all of us in Radiotopia were using Slack all the time to coordinate and check in and have fun. It's the closest we've ever been as a team, and it felt really great. And Slack can do that for your team, too. Slack is free to use for as long as you want with as many users as you want, but they do have paid plans with additional features and more powerful functionality. Anyone who visits slack.com slash 99 will get $100 in credits that they can use whenever they decide to upgrade to any paid plan. But again, Slack is free to use if you just want to try it out. Go to slack.com slash 99. Support also comes from Hover, the best way to buy and manage domain names. I use Hover as the permanent ink notebook for all my favorite ideas. Because today, if you want to do something cool and get it out there in the world, you need a good domain for it. So get inspired, then go to Hover.com and claim the perfect domain for your world-changing idea. It's the first step into making something great into a reality. If you go to Hover.com and use the offer code SUIT, I'll save you 10% on your first purchase. That's Hover.com and use the offer code SUIT. And finally, from the very beginning, Radiotopia was supported by MailChimp. MailChimp is the powerful, friendly, and easy-to-use way to connect to your customers and community. At Radiotopia, we built email lists for all different kinds of messages. Messages to donors to pick up their ringtones, to global updates, to targeted calls to action. Even though our business is audio storytelling, we simply wouldn't be successful without MailChimp. Find out for yourself at MailChimp.com and start sending better email. 
I cannot begin to tell you how excited I am to be part of Radiotopia right now. We really have a special community of listeners and creators, and listeners who allow us to be creators. And right now is a great chance for you to get to know more of your Radiotopia family. Welcome to The Allusionist. That's Allusionist with an A, not an I. This is Criminal. You're listening to Song Exploder. This is The Memory Palace. Welcome. Welcome to Strangers. To the heart. The truth. The Mortified Podcast. Theory of everything. Radio Diaries. Love and Radio. Fugitive Waves. From the Kitchen Sisters. Collect them all. You can find this show and like the show on Facebook. We're all on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Spotify, but you can listen to every single episode of 99% Invisible at 99pi.org. Radiotopia.